Last week, we were looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and that was part 2 of a message entitled, The Agony of Victory. This week is part 3 of the message called, The Agony of Victory. And try as I might to get beyond this concept, the Lord is not allowing it. Listen. The Lord is speaking to us individually and congregationally right now, Reality Carpenteria, about this subject of struggling in prayer, wrestling in prayer, doing spiritual warfare. When I first, several weeks ago, started to study verses 1 through 4, I said, man, we'll breeze through that in a minute. And the first Sunday, I planned on going all the way through verse 8. But then the Holy Spirit just kind of said, slow down a little bit. There's some stuff I want to show you. And verses 1 through 4, we did a a sermon the first week, and we didn't get through that. And so we had another sermon on it last week. And now we're in it for part 3 of the agony of victory. And I have a sneaking suspicion that there might be a part 4. But let's read verse 1 as we're going to narrow in on that again today. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul the Apostle again writing says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we ask you to speak to us this morning in our individual hearts and corporately as a body, as a congregation, as a church. I know, Lord, that you are calling us to a deeper place of prayer. Again, individually and corporately. And I ask that you would tune our ears this morning. That the church might hear what the Spirit is saying. That, Lord, you would instruct us in the deep things. That you would call us to a brand new place of prayer. And in that, our lives would be transformed. And our community would be transformed. And, Lord, we would have faith that even our nation would be transformed. God, you do those things in the Bible. And Lord, we're going to hold you accountable to what we see in the Word of God. We believe that you are unchanging, that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we expect great things from you. But make us a people that would attempt great things for you, Lord. Move radically in our hearts this morning. Teach us to be persistent in prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about this idea of struggling, agonizing in prayer on behalf of others. From verse 1, as Paul says to the churches there in the Lycus Valley in modern day Turkey, as he says to them, I want you to know, it's important for them to know, how great a struggle Paul has had on their behalf. Even though he's never seen them, he is struggling in the spiritual realm, battling on their behalf for their spiritual well-being. And again, that word struggle in the Greek is agon. And it's the picture of the athlete who is striving, competing, contesting, giving it his all, going for the prize, going for the goal, going for first place. He's tuned, he's fit, he's in check, and he's going after it with all that he has. And Paul says, I'm doing this for you guys. Even though Paul is in a prison cell in Rome, thousands of miles away, and he's never met these people. He's striving for them in the spiritual realm. 
And we've talked about the last two weeks, the three reasons why he's doing that. You'll recall, number one, because he had a tremendous love for God, which of course spawned in him a tremendous love for these people. Number two was because he had a tremendous love for the truth of God. And number three, he had an understanding of how prayer works. And we zero it in on that third one last week. He had an understanding of how prayer works, or said differently, the power of prayer. And we're going to look at another facet of prayer this morning, adding on to or dovetailing into that which we spoke about last week. Remember that the clear teaching of Scripture is that throughout history, God has chosen to work through people rather than independently of people. You understand that? It is a clear teaching of Scripture and the observance that we have in history that God chooses to work through people rather than independent of people. We also understand from Scripture that we are commanded and have the privilege to come to the Lord in prayer. It's a command, but it is an honor. It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a wonder. It's a mystery. It's awesome. And we also understand from Scripture that prayer changes things. That was the thrust of the message last week. That lives, situations, communities, and nations are transformed through prayer. You remember 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek after me with all their heart and repent. I will hear them and then I will heal their land. It's an if-then statement. If my people will pray, then I will heal their land. The converse of that or the flip side of that coin is if they don't, then he won't. Prayer changes things and the lack of prayer causes things to continue as the status quo. That was the thrust of the message last week. Excuse me. And we also ended last week by saying, because of the fact that God works through people, that we have the privilege of asking things in prayer, the command of asking things in prayer, and the fact that prayer changes things, therefore we have, I have, you have, a moral obligation in prayer. A moral obligation in prayer. You'll remember last week that we spoke of Mark chapter 9, where the father brought his son who was demonized to the disciples. And he said to the disciples, I want you to cast out this demon from my son. And the disciples, try as they may, were unable to do so. They had done so previously. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord called them that they might have authority to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, he sent them out to cast out demons, giving them authority. They had done so. They had been given the authority, but now in Mark chapter 9, they're unable to help this young man. Thankfully, the Lord comes along, and the Lord delivers the boy, but the disciples say, Lord, what went wrong? Why couldn't we be effective in helping him? And the Lord said, this kind only comes out by prayer. 
Meaning, not that they had to pray in the instant. They were certainly doing that. Meaning, rather, that they should have been, they needed to be cultivating an attitude of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer, which yields a spiritual alertness, readiness, and power, and ability to stand in the authority, the strength, and the gifts of the Lord in the moment of need. But because they, like so many of us, were not cultivating that, when the time of need came, they were unable to effect change. But we're told in Matthew 5.16 that the fervent prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. The fervent prayer, the continual, heartfelt, passionate prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. But because of their prayerlessness, and we would see it later in the lives of the disciples, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, because of their prayerlessness, they were unable to effect change when somebody was in desperate need. Saints of God, we don't want to be in that position. There are young men and ladies in our community who may be demonized, who are caught up in all sorts of immorality, who are broken and hurt and lost and wounded, and there are parents and children themselves crying out for help. And the church needs to be in a place spiritually where we are able by the authority and the power and the cross of Jesus Christ to help them. Because the Lord chooses to work through you rather than independently from you or of you. You understand that? And so there is this tremendous moral obligation upon the church that we ought to be in an attitude of prayer. Indeed, Paul the Apostle said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we should pray without ceasing. Excuse me. We need to also remember that prayer is engaging in the battle. It is engaging in the spiritual battle that is constantly being waged for the souls of men, women, and children and their well-being. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Just a few books back toward the beginning of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, we have this very famous passage on spiritual warfare. We're going to read through it. I'm just going to highlight two points from it. We're not going to do a thorough teaching or discussion on this today. I just want to highlight two points, but let's read through it because it's very important. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, there's that word again, like Paul used. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. There we have that incredible passage that tells us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. That we struggle not against things in the physical realm, but the spiritual realities behind them. And the command to us is that we would stand firm. We're told in James 4.7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The flip side of that coin is, cave into the devil and he will cling to you. Stand firm, therefore, it says repeatedly, stand firm and be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The Christian doesn't stand in his own strength. He doesn't stand in his own might. But we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And when it comes to the Lord and the devil, it is not a power struggle. The Lord has all authority and all power. Amen? But we are living in a period in history in which the devil is allowed a certain degree of sway in this world by which Christians are defined and non-Christians are forced to choose between a holy God that loves them and the wicked enemy that wants to see their end and their demise. But we're to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. Now, the two things I want to point out is number one, in verse 12, that our struggle is against spiritual forces of wickedness. That word is the same idea that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf. Same idea. Some translations say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. So there is this idea in the spiritual realm of wrestling, struggling, Now notice, it doesn't say that we wrestle with God in prayer, but it says we wrestle with the forces of wickedness in prayer. Understand that distinction. And we are engaged in that, and we're to be cognizant of that. And so the end result, the command, therefore, in verse 18, is that we are then to pray at all times. Since we are in this struggle, how do we wrestle? How do we battle? How do we contest for the souls and well-being of men, women, and children? By praying at all times, as it says in verse 18. Concerning prayer, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful, literally mighty before God for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. This weapon of prayer, this tool, this resource that we've been given, this thing that we're to struggle in, labor in, strive in on behalf of others, is divinely powerful, the Bible says. It's not a weapon of the flesh, meaning it's got no limits upon it. It's an unending resource. And literally there... It's powerful before God. God honors prayer. God uses prayer. God moves and works through prayer. And we're told that it is for the destruction of fortresses, that is, satanic strongholds. 
for the tearing down of things that would exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Not that we would just make a dent in the things the enemy wants to do in our community, but that we would destroy what the enemy wants to do in our community. Because we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And when we pray, we partner with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that we are the partners with the Lord in his work. And so it is in prayer because God chooses to work through people that we partner with him in destroying the work of the enemy amongst our spouses and our kids and our community and our nation. Remember from last week, Daniel chapter 10, that Daniel began to pray on behalf of his nation. And three weeks later, he received the answer to the prayer. But when the angel came as a messenger, he told him, Daniel, from the moment you begin to pray, the Father heard you and I was dispatched. From the moment you begin to pray. But the angel told him explicitly, this is Bible, I was engaged in a war in the spiritual realm. And Michael the archangel came to my aid. And the inference there is, thank God that Daniel persevered in prayer. That he didn't give up after three days, five days, ten days, twelve days, fifteen days, seventeen days, nineteen days. But to the twenty-first day, he persevered in prayer until the battle was won and then the answer came. We are to persevere in prayer. There's a battle going on. Prayer changes things. We have the command and the privilege to do so. There is a moral responsibility, but it is a battle. And so Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 18. Let's go to Luke 18 now. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we'll start in verse 1. Verse 1 is very important. It says, Now Jesus was telling them, this is the disciples, Jesus is telling the disciples a parable to show that. Now hold on right there. He's telling them a parable. What is a parable? Para in the Greek language means alongside. Balo means to cast. It's where we get our word ball. And so it means to cast alongside, to put something alongside of something else to make an illustration, to make a point, to make a comparison or a contrast to reveal a spiritual truth. So he's telling them this parable. He's casting alongside a spiritual reality, pictures and words that they are familiar with that they might learn a spiritual principle. Jesus, talking to the the disciples, tells them this to show that, two things here, at all times they ought to pray, and number two, not to lose hearts. Two things there. He wants his disciples to know from this parable that we're about to read, that they need to pray at all times, but also that they need to not lose heart, because as anybody knows that's engaged in the battle, sometimes we can lose hearts. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Since we have this kind of ministry, therefore we do not lose hearts. 
or literally in the Greek, we are not faint-hearted cowards. Since we have this kind of ministry, we are not faint-hearted cowards. What kind of ministry? The kind of ministry that snatches men, women, and children from the gates of hell and delivers them into the kingdom of light of the beloved Son. Since we have, the church has been given this incredible ministry, we don't wimp out, we don't wuss out, we don't lose heart. So the Lord tells them this parable, that they might pray at all times and not lose heart. Now look at the details of it, verse 2. Jesus says, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent, or literally, do me justice. Verse 4. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and he will not delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, this is a parable by contrast in this. God the Father is not like the unjust judge. It is a parable by contrast in that sense. He is not comparing God the Father to the unjust judge. He's not like that. There's a contrast made. God is not like that, but the comparison is this. Prayer is like that. God is not unjust, nor is He bothered by us, but prayer is to be persistent and continual and relentless. God is not like that judge, but prayer is like the attitude of that woman. It requires persistence. I want us to see it again in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches the same things with a different illustration. Luke chapter 11, we'll read verse 1 to get the context and then we'll move down to verse 5 for time's sake. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, And it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples. Very interesting. Powerful and potent point right there. The only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was how to pray. They had seen him walk on water. They never said, teach us to walk on water. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They never said, teach us to raise people from the dead. Though Peter did walk on water, and Peter did raise Tabitha from the dead. They had seen him produce an amazing catch of fish, but they never said, teach us how to fish, though they could have used some lessons. The only thing they ever asked the Lord to teach them directly was how to pray. That means that as they observed for three years the life of Jesus Christ, the most potent thing they saw was his prayer life. That ought to speak volumes to us. So that is the context. 
He gives them the Lord's Prayer. That's for another sermon. Go to verse 5. Verse 5. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Don't bother me. The door's already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, once again, God is not like that, but prayer is like that. What is Jesus teaching them? He's teaching them about prayer. They said, teach us to pray. This is not a parable about the character of God. It's a parable about the character and nature of prayer. In fact, God was contrasted to the unjust judge in Luke 18, and he will be contrasted in a moment to this sleeping friend. But the thrust, the point of it, is that prayer requires persistence. Jesus said he wouldn't get out of bed because he was his friend. He would only get out of bed because of his persistence, or as it could be translated, shamelessness. Or as it is translated in the King James, importunity. I love that word. We're going to learn about that right now. Importunity. Because of the man's importunity, his prayer was answered. What does that adjective mean? Look it up in Webster's and it says this. To be urgent or persistent in asking or demanding. To be insistent, refusing to be denied. Annoyingly urgent or persistent. Do you remember back in Luke 18, a moment ago, verse 5, he said, Yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her justice. Because she was importune. Because she was persistent and insistent, her request was answered. Now, once again, God is not like the unjust judge or the sleepy friend. We're told in Revelation 5, chapter 8, that our prayers are like golden bowls full of incense before them. He delights in our prayers. He commands us to pray. He loves to hear our voice in the morning as his children. God is not like that. But prayer that prevails is like that. There's a difference between everyday prayer that comes and goes with our whims and prayer that prevails. Prayer that prevails is like that. It is importune. It is consistent. It is persistent. And it is insistent. Praying with importunity is to persistently request with insistence over and over again. Now contrast that with the words of Jesus last week. Last week as we looked at Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus once again talking about prayer. He said in verse 7, When you pray, do not use meaningless or vain repetition. Notice, as we mentioned last week, he didn't say don't use repetition. He said don't use meaningless or vain repetition, and there is a difference. The cultural context is this. In that time, in the Greek culture and among the pagan peoples, When they prayed, they would use many words or titles of their deities trying to get the attention of their gods. 
Remember from 1 Kings 18? When the prophets of Baal, all day long, they're dancing and chanting and yelling and screaming and cutting themselves, trying to get the attention of their God. That's what Jesus was saying. Don't use vain or meaningless repetition. Why? Because Jesus teaches in the next breath that we already have God's attention. He says in the next verse there in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need. We already have his attention. We're told in the Old Testament that his eyes go to and fro across the earth looking to find someone that he might show himself mighty on behalf of. We're told in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, that when Israel was in trouble, God looked for a man who would stand in the gap. We are told by Jesus that the Lord has numbered the hairs upon our head. Meaningless and vain repetition was done by the pagan cultures in trying to get the attention of their gods, and there was no attention because there was no God. We already have God's attention. The Word of God tells us that very clearly that he is intimately and infinitely concerned with you. His thoughts are precious and so vast, if you were to number them, they would outnumber the sand. Psalm 139. And so we don't use vain or meaningless repetition. True prayer is predicated on relationship. True prayer is predicated on relationship. It does not require vain words or manipulative addresses. Let me say it like this. Fathers and children do not make speeches to one another. Fathers and children do not make speeches to one another because there is a relationship. They don't make speeches, but they do communicate and hopefully frequently. They don't make speeches to each other or have long addresses, vain and meaningless repetition, but they do commune, and I would hope frequently. True prayer is predicated by relationship. And when you repent of your sins and are saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, you come into a true, meaningful love relationship with the living God. And so we're told in the book of Hebrews that the access to the throne, which is a throne of grace, undeserved favor. The access to the throne is such that we can enter boldly when we need help. Because there is already that relationship. Jesus describes this further, this importunity in prayer, in verse 10 of where you're at. Luke 11, verse 10. Actually start in verse 9, forgive me. Luke 11, verse 9. And I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Verse 11. Now suppose one of your fathers or one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Now, Jesus brings the Holy Spirit into the picture, but the principle is the same throughout prayer and for whatever we are asking. Here, he contrasts God with the unfaithful friend who is sleeping at night to our Heavenly Father, who is infinitely and intimately concerned. And he says, if even earthly fathers who are wicked know how to give good things to their children, how much your Heavenly Father... And then he gives us the idea of importunity once again. He says there in verse 9, I say to you, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Now it's very clear in the, in the Greek language here that when it says ask, it's in a tense that it means keep on asking. It's in the margin if you have a New American Standard Bible. It means keep on asking. And when it says seek, it means keep on seeking. It's very clear in the Greek. I don't know why they don't translate it that way, but it's very, very clear. That is the truth. And when it says knock, it means keep on knocking. And so what the Lord says here literally, in verse 9, I say to you, ask and keep asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking and it will be given to you. Knock and keep knocking and it shall be opened to you. And that your heavenly Father wants to give you good gifts. Now you need faith to believe the word of God this morning. You need faith to believe that. You've got to come to the word of God in belief. A wonderful friend of mine whom I love very much recently bought a jacuzzi. I love him even more now. (laughs) And he invited us over the other day and it was just yesterday actually and Yesterday evening, we were sitting in the jacuzzi and just enjoying it, but the water level was a little bit low in it, in my opinion. You know, I like when the water is all the way up to the very top. It just feels more luxurious that way. When the water's just spilling over, you know what I mean? Like one of those infinity pools or whatever. But the manual told them, only fill it to a certain level. And in fact, in the manual, it was in bold letters, only fill it to this level. And in our opinion, the level was too low. We wanted to fill it all the way to the top. And so we begin to question and we say, why could they possibly say that? And we begin to look around and according to our own knowledge and our own ability, we could discern no reason why we shouldn't fill the water to the top. It didn't make any sense to us. And I was so challenged by what this stupid manual said. And I finally came to the point where I said, I don't believe the manual. I think it's wrong. I think it's an error. I think they're lying and they just don't want us to enjoy it. And as I said it, as I verbalized it, it dawned on me how silly that was. But in the same moment, it dawned on me that many people are like that with the Word of God. You know, they read it, and yet they look around with their eyes and they say, I don't see how it works. I can't figure out why the Lord wants to do it that way. It doesn't make sense to me. And they finally reason themselves to this point of saying, you know what, I don't believe it. God just wants to limit my fun. He wants to limit my life. He wants to limit my experience. Jesus says just the opposite. He says, if you keep asking, if you keep seeking, if you keep knocking, your heavenly Father is going to give you good things. But you've got to have faith. Why did he give us a parable in Luke 18? That we might pray always and not lose heart. When do you lose heart? When you lose faith. When do you lose faith? When you stop receiving the word of God as the word of God. Is there something in your life that needs prayer? 
Is there somebody in your life that needs prayer? Is there an instance, a situation, a person, a community, a problem? Then pray and keep praying. Don't give up. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And notice that those increase in intensity. It starts with asking, well, Lord, would you do this? And then it goes to seeking. Come on, Lord. Come on, Lord, do this. And then it goes to knocking. Lord, you've got to do this. And that's Bible. That is what Jesus said when the disciples said, teach us how to pray. He said, okay, you need to pray with importunity. Understanding that your heavenly father is good and he will speedily bring about justice for you and he wants to give you good gifts, but somehow it requires importunity and persistence and insistence. Why is that? Because it's a battle. Because the moment you begin to pray, you enter into the battle. And it's just like Daniel and Daniel chapter 10. That is why we've got to keep asking, why we've got to keep seeking, why we've got to keep knocking, because there are two battles going on. One for the souls and well-being of men, women, and children, and one for your refining. You understand that? And as we seek and ask and knock in prayer, the Lord refines you. It does something in the spirit of the saint. It builds a discipline and a faith and a holy boldness and a passion for other people. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. You know what happens when you pray for your enemies? Your heart softens toward them. Everything changes. You know what I mean? Prayer changes things, including you. But the fact that it's a battle is illustrated perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Seventy-five of us were just there in Israel last month in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was incredible. We'll never read this story the same again after being there, huh? Luke 22, starting in verse 39, illustrating persistence in prayer and fervent agonizing prayer, even in the life of our Lord. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is, of course, the eve before the cross. He's going to be arrested not too long from now. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Two points. Number one, we learn from the rest of the Gospels that Jesus prayed that prayer three times. He prayed it three times. He was persistent. Father, if there's any other way to save humanity, let this cup pass before me. But nevertheless, thy will be done. We are told in 1 John to pray according to the will of God. He prays it three times. Father, if there is any way for this cup to pass before me. Now, if even the Son of God prayed to the Father with persistence, how much more you and I? I mean, it's unfathomable. We don't quite get it. It's one of these mysterious things concerning prayer in the life of our Lord. So Jesus was persistent here in what? 
in the midst of a battle. It's the garden of Gethsemane. It is the garden of decision. It is the eve before the cross. It is where the reality of the cross, not just the physical torment of it, but the spiritual truth that my sin and your sin and the sins of every person that has ever lived would be heaped upon the sinless shoulders of Jesus Christ in that indescribable moment. The agony of that, the reality of that, the depth of that was such that he sweat drops of blood, an actual medical condition, hematidrosis, only experienced under severe agonizing conditions. And it says there in verse 44 that being in agony, there is that word again, he was praying fervently. The Lord was praying fervently because he was in the midst of the battle. And he prayed persistently because he was in the midst of the battle. And when we begin to pray, we step into the battle. When the church refuses to pray, it removes itself from the battle and you might as well assume a victim mentality at that point. You just watch it happen. And the enemy just comes into the ranks and begins to decimate. Do you know how many people I have heard this week that have fallen in sexual immorality? Pastors and leaders in various churches that I know of? More than two. This week alone. The enemy would love to destroy, to mar, to pervert the bride of Christ. There is a battle happening. And we are called to press into the battle. To put off the victim mentality. To reject the status quo. To have faith to believe that prayer changes things. And when we step in the midst to say, because this ministry is so incredible and lives are changed, I will not lose heart. I will not be a faint-hearted coward. I will persist. I will insist. I will be importune in my prayer, as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his life, he rose early to pray. In his life, Jesus spent whole evenings, whole nights in prayer. We're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that he offered up prayers with loud crying and tears. If the Lord prayed with crying and tears, how much more should you and I? It's the same idea that we're learning about from Paul in Colossians 2 verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf and those at Laodicea and all those who have not seen my face. Paul is struggling, battling, agonizing. It's what Daniel was doing on behalf of Israel in Daniel chapter 10. It's what the church was doing in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was arrested. Peter was arrested for the gospel and it says that the church got together and they had a prayer meeting and they refused to stop praying until Peter came and he knocked on the door. It's what this church is going to do this Wednesday night as we gather again at 6 p.m. to pray for the youth and the purity and the deliverance thereof. It's what we did last Wednesday. It's what we'll do again this Wednesday. Why are we having another prayer for the purity of the youth? Because we need to persist. We need to persevere. We need to be importune. We need to insist. We need to press in because if ever there was a spiritual battle, it is for the sexual purity of the young people in America today. If ever there was a battle, teach us to pray, Lord. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, 
part of the response was that they had to be importune. They had to persist with insistence. Prayer is like that. Charles Finney is one of the greatest American evangelists in history. And I've been reading his autobiography. It's a beautiful little book here. And uh, I'm going to read you a quote from it. Charles Finney, born in 1792, lived to 1875. Read a biography or an autobiography on Charles Finney. I don't agree with all of his theology. But the way that the Lord used him in this nation some years ago is undeniable. And this is his autobiography. It's a collection of his own writings from his diaries. And I want to read to you what he says about his own prayer life here. He's going to talk about a place called DeKalb. It's in Illinois. And he's going to talk about going to a synod. It's a council of church leadership that he was on his way to. For several weeks before I left DeKalb to go to the synod, this leadership meeting, I was very strongly exercised in prayer and had an experience that was somewhat new to me. I, find myself, or I found myself so much exercised and so borne down with the weight of immortal souls that I was constrained to pray without ceasing. Some of my experience indeed alarmed me. A spirit of importunity sometimes came upon me so that I would say to God that he had made a promise to answer prayer and I could not and would not be denied. He would say that to the Lord. It seems so bold, but it is so biblical. He goes on. I felt so certain that he would hear me and that faithfulness to his promises and to himself rendered it impossible that he should not hear an answer that frequently I found myself saying to him, quote, I hope that thou dost not think that I can be denied. I come with thy faithful promises in my hand and I cannot be denied, end quote. I cannot tell you how absurd unbelief looked to me and how certain I was in my mind that God would answer prayer. Those prayers that from day to day and from hour to hour, I find myself or I found myself offering in agony and faith. I had no idea of the shape of the answer, the locality in which the prayers would be answered or the exact time of the answer. My impression was that the answer was near even at the door. And I felt myself strengthened in the divine life, put on the harness for a mighty conflict with the powers of darkness, and expected soon to see a far more powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God in that new country where I had been laboring. Wow. Lord, that you would give men and women in our community a faith like that that you would burden our souls with the way that you burden the soul of Charles Finney. Lord, that you would do that in some people from this place. Notice what caused such fervent prayer in him was that he was born down with the weight of souls. It is the exact same situation of Paul as he sat in prison in Rome and he thought about those three churches in the Lycus Valley and he was so burdened with their souls that when he wrote to them, he said, it's very important that you know the struggle I have had on your behalf. Makes me think also of a man named William Carey, this time from England, lived from 1761 to 1834. He was a simple man, he was a shoemaker. And there he made shoes all day long. And one day, having a realization of the immensity of the gospel, 
and the size of the world, he fashioned out of that shoe leather a globe. He made a globe out of shoe leather. And he made this globe the object or the inspiration for prayer. And he would hold this globe and he would look at it and he'd begin to pray for people he had never seen, he had never visited, he may never know. He began to pray for them. He had never been anywhere. He just began to have a burden for souls and he would look at that globe and he would pray. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord sent that man, William Carey, to India and he became the father of modern missions. He became a pioneer in the winning of souls in other nations. And there are people in India today who owe their salvation in part to this shoemaker who had the faith and the boldness and the strangeness to make himself a globe and to look at it and pray for people he had never seen. And he is the man whom we quote when we say, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Church, the only thing I have to ask you is are you passionate about anybody other than yourself? And if not, that needs to change. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I trust, Holy Spirit, that these things which you've spoke have not fallen upon deaf ears. Indeed, your word says that as the rain and the snow come forth upon the earth, and water it and cause a seed to sprout and bear fruit, so your word accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent forth. Spirit of God, I ask that you would water the word of God now in our hearts. That you'd raise up in our midst Charles Finney's, William Carey's, Paul's, Christ-like men and women with a passion to intercede. Lord, I, under- I, I confess, Lord, I confess that my heart is not in this place. And we are asking corporately, Lord, that you would do a work in us of rattling our selfishness, of opening up to us the depth, the breadth, the width of the gospel, and that you would burden us for souls and make us importune in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, do that in us.